0: We are turning to Matthew chapter 27, and our text is found in verse number 42. Now, we have been looking at some of the words and some of the testimony that the enemies of Christ have said and uttered concerning Jesus. And we have seen that at these times, they have said some remarkable things and said things which are true and quite wonderful, even though they may not have intended it to be taken that way. We've seen how they criticised Jesus for having compassion on publicans and sinners. And what an encouragement that that is, that whilst the, the chief priests and the religious leaders scoffed at him, mocked him for meeting with undesirables, what an encouragement that is for us, that he will meet with us. We looked at the way in which the temple guards they come to arrest him and they cannot because they say that no man spoke like this man these temple officials are speaking and testifying to the power and the authority of the words of jesus christ we find the chief priest inadvertently as far as he was concerned made a uh, made a prophecy he said it's better that one man dies for the nation than the whole nation suffer. How little did he realise what truth he was describing? And then the last two times we've been here, we've looked at the testimony of Pilate, and on two occasions he says things that are remarkably true and wonderful. One is that he found no faults in Jesus, and the second one we thought last week where he announces jesus to be the king of the jews but this morning we have an insult that's hurled by the chief priests against jesus and it's a wonderful testimony to his work of salvation i don't know whether you've ever said something that you intend to be understood one way that's taken a different way let me give you an example ten years ago almost eleven years ago Margaret was in hospital having felicity and during the labor she had an epidural inserted and that's a little uh, tube that goes into the spine and I'd seen in my career lots of these being put in not necessarily on the delivery suite but certainly in other environments And I had seen them where they had failed, where they had to be repeated, and where the doctor had made a complete bodge up of what they were supposed to do. As it was being done on Margaret, the anaesthetist did it first time. And I blurted out, that was painless. What I meant was that the doctor had done it without any fuss. He hadn't done it without any messing around but that's not how the whole of the delivery suite took it. And I still have to keep saying that's not what I meant. I can imagine if we had representatives of the chief priests here this morning, as we look at verse 42, that they may be uttering words like that. We didn't mean it like that. Uh, We didn't mean it to be taken that way but they said what they said and what they say is really quite remarkable well the narrative moves on from where we were last week we find that pilate has succumbed to the baying crowds he has responded to the mob mentality and he now actually hands over jesus to be crucified Jesus is making his journey down from the judgment hall to the place where he is to be crucified. And it's to be done outside of the city. Criminals uh, were required to carry their cross, or certainly the crossbeam of the cross. And due to the torture that the Saviour has already endured and experienced, he needs the help of somebody that's passing by. Simon of Cyrene and as they come out of the city the execution party arrive at the place called Calvary or Golgotha or as its translation the place of a skull the whole environment the whole place there looked a little bit like a head so that's why it was called Golgotha but it was outside the city And when you come to the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13, we're reminded there about how the bodies of the animals, the blood was brought into the holy place by a high priest, and then it was burned outside the camp. And then the link up is made between what Jesus has done, how that he suffered outside the gate, so that he might sanctify his people through his blood. And then the exhortation comes to us, therefore let us... Go outside and go to him outside the camp and bear his reproach. But this whole idea of being outside the city or outside the camp is rooted in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 24, verses 13 to 14, we have there the serious judgment that will come upon those that had blasphemed. And the one that is cursed is to be taken outside the camp. And there they are to be stoned. So it was a place where judgment was administered, but it was also a place where offerings were made. Some distance away from where the main congregation was. For example, if you look at Numbers nineteen, you see there how Eliezer the priest he is to go and slaughter an animal outside of the camp, and then take of its blood and sprinkle it towards the tent of meeting. It was a place where the red heifer would be offered, and you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 10 and 11. And so this is where Jesus is. He's the object of curse. He is wearing that crown of thorns, the object of being cursed. Remember how God in the Garden of Eden, he pronounced a curse, and one of the curses was that thorns and thistles would rise and that's the crown that's placed on him. We read about everyone that hangs on a tree is cursed and where is Jesus? He's hanging on that cross outside the camp but also a place of sacrifice and offering. So the execution party have arrived They've laid Jesus on the cross, they've nailed his hands and his feet, they've hoisted up the cross, they've dropped it into position, and there he would hang. This wasn't a private spectacle, it was very much a public occasion. And people would go and have a day out at an execution. In fact, in this country, it was only up until about the mid-1800s that executions were done in public and it was a great day out. I'm sure we can think of better things to do, but going back then, that's what they did. But this was public. Perhaps there were those who were the victims of, or representatives of the victims of the criminals that were being crucified there, wanting to see and ensure that justice was being administered. Perhaps there were the officials there to make sure that everything was being done and justice was being properly done as it should be. But there were people there that just wanted to go and see and enjoy the spectacle. And people would come by those crosses, and as they came, they would often hurl insults at those that were dying. There was no such thing if you were crucified of dying in peace. You were there on public display, ridiculed and mocked until your final breath. And from the Gospel accounts, there is Jesus in the middle, flanked by two other criminals, or malefactors And it seems as if, as you read the, the text, that all of the hurling and all of the insults are directed upon one man and one cross. In fact, we read about the thieves themselves, either side. Joining in, adding their two penneth of insult as well. And we find that they are laughing at him about how he prophesied to destroy the temple and in three days build it up. Of course, he was speaking uh, spiritually about his body. But there they are laughing at him. In Psalm 22, we have a prophecy spoken many centuries beforehand about people passing by, the suffering servant. Listen to these words, verse 6 to 8. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted on the Lord, that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. All that passed by joined in mocking and ridiculing but it is the ridicule that we find in verse 42 that i want us to have our thoughts directed to this morning he saved others he can, himself he cannot save if he be the king of israel let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him looking at their own testimony and what they were saying we see three things number one is this that jesus is the savior the second thing that we see is that jesus is the selfless savior and the third thing that we see is jesus being the single-minded savior jesus is the savior throughout the life and ministry of jesus christ we see over and over again the truth the reality and the fact that he saved people he met with and reached out to people who oftentimes were on the very edge of society we read about him having compassion upon those that were in need We find him coming to those who were at an end of themselves, not able to know which way to turn, and struggling. We find he had compassion upon those who had made an absolute mess of their lives. He would say that he hadn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. And what he meant by that was those who were self-confident self-assured that they were fine that they were good enough he had come to those that were ruined by sin so we could think of some examples and the people here that are passing by would have known some of these individuals for example the woman caught in adultery there she is dragged out by her accusers placed at the feet of jesus and But what does he say to her? Does he justly say to her about her sin and what she's done and what a mess she's made? No, he tells her to go and sin no more. He saved her. We think about the paralysed man let down through the roof by the help of his four friends. The first thing Jesus does to him is tell him, your sins are forgiven. He saved him. And then he healed him and he could walk out of the building he'd just been let down through the roof from. You can think about Zacchaeus, what a change took place in that man's life. A man who was a swindler, he was a man who didn't think too much about treating people with, who were vulnerable, without any thought or regard, he defrauded people. We might describe him as being, uh, preying on the vulnerable and he's changed. And so instead of taking money, he's giving money away. A man truly changed and transformed. You can think about the demoniac in Gadarenes. There he is, terrifying sight, causing fear to the whole population round about. He cannot be restrained, he cannot be contained. And yet he meets Jesus, and there he is, sat, clothed, sitting in his right mind. Jesus saved Jesus people we could think about lazarus man who'd been dead for four days in a tomb he saves him from the grave he is the savior or the woman with the issue of blood a woman afflicted for so many years suffering social stigma and all the other things that went with her condition the lord saved her and then jairus's daughter daughter 12 years old not much different to some of the children here she had died and the lord saved her over and over again we see the truth shining out that jesus saves people he saves sinners he comes he delivers he meets them he lifts them out of the pit to which they find themselves in listen to the words of psalm 14. I waited patiently for the lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry he brought me up also out of an horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings he hath put a new song in my mouth even praise unto our god many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the lord blessed is that man that maketh the lord his trust and respecteth not the proud Nor such as turn aside to lies. When the Lord saves, we're not left in the mire and the filth and the brokenness of our our life. The Lord saves and lifts us up. And these chief priests, religious leaders, who are so vehement in their determination to have Jesus put to death, are now laughing and mocking and ridiculing Jesus as he dies and they say this, he saved others. Hallelujah! He saved others. What a eulogy they are providing for him as he is there suffering. What a comfort to his people to be reminded of what he had come to do to save sinners. He had come for this mission. The mission was to be a savior for his people. That was his name. And the rabble are testifying to it. And you could imagine the chief priest going, well, we didn't mean it like that. We didn't mean you to take it that way. We can take it that way because that is who he is. He is the saviour. Well, what does this have to do for us? I would encourage you, to listen to the words of the chief priests. Listen to what they say about Jesus. They are telling you he saves. I can't save you. Nobody else in this church can save you. Nobody else in this world can save you. But this man can. This one dying on the cross, the chief priests are ridiculing and mocking. He Saved others. And you may look at yourself and think, well, how could I be saved? Look at who he did save. He saved others? Why not you? The second thing to see is this. He is the saviour, but he's also the selfless saviour. They say of him himself, He cannot save. Now, in some ways, this statement is true. But in other ways, this statement is false. Could Jesus have saved himself? In part, yes, he could. That statement, they said, was false because Jesus could have saved himself or have been saved. If you think back to the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, there was an occasion where he had just performed a miracle, he'd been teaching, and the crowd were angry about him, and they wanted to seize him and kill him, but they could not. He walked straight through the middle of that crowd and not one person laid a hand on him. You could think about the temple guards that we've considered. They go out with the intent of arresting him, but his words stop them. You could think about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18 records about those who come armed, and as they approach him, they fall down before him. We then read about Peter, and he has his sword drawn, and he quickly whips off the ear of Malchus, the the high priest's servant, and this is what Jesus tells him. Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? And in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take him. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. It wasn't the nails that prevented him from coming down. It wasn't the armed guards that were stopping him from descending from the cross. The hymn writer puts it like this. Was it the nails, O Saviour? That bound thee to the tree nay twas thine everlasting love thy love for me for me could he have saved himself yes would he have saved himself no when they said he couldn't save himself that is a true statement it wasn't the case that he didn't have the power to do so but it would have required him to go against the will of his father, to go against the whole purpose of his coming into this world to save sinners. Listen to what we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In order to save others, in order to save us, he could not save himself. If you are a Christian here, think about the love that's on display here. Here he is giving himself, as a ransom. Here he is being the sacrifice for sin offered outside of the camp. Here he is thinking only about his people and not about himself. He is the self, the saviour. The third thing, Jesus is the single-minded saviour we find the crowd say if he be the king of israel let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him and here they are doing something to provoke him now if we are provoked or if we are challenged often it is a natural response that we're going to show them we're going to prove that person wrong so perhaps you go for an interview and you don't get the job and you get some feedback and the person says, well, you don't have the, the skills to do the job and you think to yourself, I jolly well do. I'm gonna show them and I'm gonna apply for a job and I'm gonna get that job. Or a brother or sister says to you, you can't do this and you think to yourself, I am gonna do this. You can't stop me. That is a natural response to things when we are provoked or being challenged. We have an indignation rising within us that we want to prove these doubters wrong and Jesus here is being provoked he's told if you are the king of Israel then come down from that cross and we will believe you what an offer is on the table this on one hand is a win-win scenario he is being delivered from the excruciating pain of crucifixion And he has promised that people are going to worship, to believe upon him, and to know that what he's been saying is true. It's tempting. But if he had done that, then salvation would not have been secure. Because on the cross, he is dying a substitute's death, and he is satisfying the justice of God that has been damaged and affected by our sin and so in order for us to be able to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to have a place in heaven, he has to take every last drop of the wrath of God that should have come to us. He has to die so that we can live. He could have avoided all of this, He could have hidden away in the countryside. But we find over and over again how Jesus deliberately goes to Jerusalem in the full knowledge of what's going to happen. His disciples knew exactly what was going. They knew the political climate at that time was not going well for Jesus. And so they knew what they're going to walk into. And so he's not here because of some lapse of judgment or he has been outwitted by his enemies, he has come single-mindedly to Calvary because he must die for his people. Nothing is going to steer him off course. Nothing is going to interrupt or affect that mission. He goes to the cross and he dies. And even here, when provoked and tempted, he will not come down. A couple of scriptures just to illustrate this. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Or Luke 9, verse 51, came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be moved in his mission. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost, and that is what he would do. He would come to die the just for the unjust to bring us to God and no amount of provocation by his enemies would deter him from that, that great mission. And as the religious leaders passed by, mocking, railing, adding their insults to the dying Christ, listen to what they say. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. And then when provoked, he continued to die so that we might live. This is the saviour to commit your life in this world and in the world to come. This is the one to turn to. No men, however great they may be, No clever people, however wise they may be, can save you. But Jesus Christ alone can and will if we call upon his name. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Although the chief priest didn't intend this to be the case, never was a truer word said. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. Look to the one that's dying. Look to the one that was raised again from the dead. Look to the one that is reigning in heaven. Look to the one that's one day coming.